Now, as we've been studying through an in-depth look at the book of Titus, we saw there, as Paul said, Titus, this is why I left you behind on that island of Crete, that wild and crazy place, because you need to set things in order. Now, you need to start with the leadership. And here's the quality of the leaders and what they need to have in their life. And then he said, now help the older men and the older women, the younger men and the younger women, to have a vision and a goal of how they are to be as godly people. And all reverence and in soberness and in good works and in submission and all the list goes on. Rather overwhelming especially for the Cretans. And then he says, as we look there at, I think, the most important verses out of the book of Titus, verses 11 through 14, that it's the grace of God that's going to get you there. It's the grace of God that teaches us. It's the grace of God that instructs us, encourages, helps us. We are what we are by the grace of God. Paul says, I labor more than all. It's by the grace of God. We are changed into the glory of Jesus Christ by the grace of God. And it's by the grace of God we're where we're at today in our pilgrimage. And it'll be by the grace of God that we grow one inch between now and tomorrow or next year. And you'll constantly find yourself knowing where you need to be and seeing where you're at. And we often have that saying that Paul has in Romans 7. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. Grace, God, grace. I need your grace, God. Pour out your grace so I can change the negative things that need to go away and the positive things that are supposed to be there that I'll be doing them. That I won't be doing the things I shouldn't do and I would be doing the things I'm supposed to do. And when we get there, and we will get there, we have a good shepherd who's getting us there. We need to daily crucify our flesh with his passions and desires. We need to daily take up that cross and follow Jesus. The more you're willing to yield your life unto Christ, the more you're willing to line up on that narrow road that leads to life, the quicker you'll get there. And I'll tell you what, I love God. And I want to get there as quick as I can, as far as I can, in Christ. And so... If that's your heart, if you have a fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom, a beginning of knowledge, and also a love for God, then you don't want to be going at a snail's pace in spiritual growth. You want to be zooming ahead because you love God, you fear God. You want to be a blessing. I'm not going to bless my wife until I am the husband that God says I'm supposed to be. I'm not going to be blessing my kids until I am the dad that the Bible says I need to be. I'm not going to be blessing to my brothers and sisters in Christ until I'm walking as Christ has told me I need to walk, which is as him. And so I can remain in this fruitless place or I can be incredibly fruitful. It says in Matthew, it says, um, even upon the good hearts, a good and fertile soil, some bore 30-fold, some 60, and some 100-fold. So there's varying degrees, even in a fruitful person, they can be a lot more fruitful. In John 14, he says, the Father prunes us, so we'll bear even more fruit. And so as we look here at the book of Titus again, he says, it's the grace of God that's going to get you there. And ultimately, we saw at the end of verse 14, 
that he would purify for himself his own special people. And this is the theme throughout Titus, that we would be zealous for good works. That there would be a passion, an energy behind that passion, and not just the thoughts that count, but the actions of doing it would all be lined up together. And we are doing the good works that God's laid before us to do. And then Paul told Timothy, so don't back down on telling them how they're to be. Don't grade on the curve. Don't change the standard. Speak these things. Exhort, rebuke with all authority. Don't let anybody despise you and say, oh, you're Tim- Titus, you're too young. Someday you'll grow up and understand or, or whatever. Don't let back down. This is the word of God. This isn't Titus's word. This isn't the apostle Paul's word. This is the word of God. So stand strong and don't back down. And then in chapter 3 tonight, remind them. Guys, in a nutshell, that's what sermons are to do. If I'm up here telling you something you've never heard before, you should be worried if you've been a Christian for a while. Because if somebody's up here telling you some new truth, it's not new. (laughs) And it's not truth. It's an old lie. The sound doctrine is something we should all know. And even a child can understand it. It's not like you have to be um, 50 years in the Lord. It's not like you have to be 40 years old. Small children can understand From Genesis to Revelation, now they're going to understand it, of course, at their level. And as you grow deeper in the Lord, you're going to understand it at a deeper level yourself. So obviously, an eight-year-old is going to understand it at an eight-year-old level. But you know what? There's some eight-year-olds that understand the Bible better than 30-years-old because those eight-year-olds are open to be taught. They're open to the Holy Spirit. And they're probably more knowledgeable of the Word if they've been taught the Word for, you know, the last eight years of their life. And you could have a brand new Christian who's 30 years old and they don't get out of the Bible what the eight-year-old gets out of the Bible because they just don't know the truth yet. And so the idea is you read the Bible. Guys, if you sit down and, and read the Bible without stop, it's like 72 hours. It's not that long. It's not as big as you think. If you read about a little over 10 chapters a day, you're reading the entire Bible a little under four months. So you could literally read the Bible, um, you know, three, four times a year if you read 10 to 15, 20 chapters a day, which isn't that much. And, you know, of course, you get to the genealogies and you read real fast, you know, and, uh, and get on to the next thing. So the reality is, is, You can know the whole Bible and study it in a year several times. Now, obviously, it's not just the information. It's the fellowship with God as we're going through the Word and God's speaking to us. And sometimes I'm meditating the Word and I get one verse. I mean, honestly, tonight I came and I said, I'm going to finish chapter 3, even though we're in an in-depth Bible study. Chapter 3 starts repeating itself of what it already said in 1 and 2. And I made it all the way through verse 1 of chapter 3. I mean, just God was just speaking to me. And as he was speaking to me and writing it down, it just became fuller and fuller until this one verse was not just one verse. It was a lot in there that God was just bountifully speaking. And sometimes that's the way it is when you read the Bible. 
Sometimes you sit there and you can read 10 chapters and God's speaking to you through the whole 10 chapters. It's life-changing. I'll tell you something really life-changing. Get up on a Saturday morning and just say, I'm going to read an entire gospel. Get up and read from Matthew chapter 1 all the way to Matthew 28. Read the entire gospel in one sitting. Don't get up. Just sit there and read it. It'll take you probably a couple hours maybe maybe three or four, depending on how fast you're reading and the pauses, but just shut the phones off. Don't be distracted and your life will be changed. You can do that with almost any book of the, well, you can do that with any book of the Bible. Just from a a, a quick view of the whole thing, there's a powerful message. And then as you dissect one verse, there's a whole message. So God's word's living and it's powerful. And the pastor's job is to remind, is to say, guys, We know this. Guys, let me tell you about something. I know that, but I forgot it. (laughs) Have you ever had that happen where you react a certain way and then somebody says, you know, here's a verse. And you're just, oh my goodness. How did I totally lose that verse? That verse was my theme verse for the last three years. And all of a sudden now, I don't even remember its existence until you reminded me of it. And that's what we're to do. And Paul is telling them to remind them of things I've already taught them. In this particular, he is to remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. He repeats the every good work thing that he's been talking about. And so we see that the Apostle Paul talks about reminding them. In Romans chapter 15, verse 14 and 15, he writes this. Romans 15, verse 14 and 15. Now I, may, now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Verse 15. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God. So these things that I've been teaching you and admonishing you, and I'm bold to speak it because it's not something new you're hearing for the first time. I'm bold towards you being in your face about it because it's something you know, but you need to be reminded of it in a more emphatic way. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So there it is. I remind you to stir up the gift. He told Timothy this more than once. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and a love and a sound mind. Peter had the same job description, and he saw it in the same way. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 through 15. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Though you know and are established in the present truth. So I know you know it and I know you're established in it, but I'm going to remind you anyway. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you. Knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Verse 15. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. And also in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. 
Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds here by way of reminder, which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior. So we see that Paul, we see that Peter says, my job is to remind you and to keep reminding you and to get this in written form. So you're reminded over and over again of these things. Well, back in Titus, he says here, to remind you something that has been told on more than one occasion here, to be subject to rulers and authorities. And so he makes a pretty broad sweep there of all kinds of rulers and all kinds of authorities. Turn over, if you would, to Romans chapter 13. If you ever need one passage on submission to civil authorities, Romans chapter 13 is your passage. Romans chapter 13, there in verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Now again, this is in a general sense. Sometimes there are evil rulers, and they are a threat to good people. But for the most part, rulers are the right hand of God, even if they're an unsaved ruler. And they are trying, I mean, God's written in all of our hearts a sense of what's true and what's not true, what's right and what's not right. And I've had people try to tell me, well, you know, that's your Judeo-Christian ethic. That's the reason you feel that way. And I just look at them in the eye and say, be honest with yourself. You know living with that girl and not being married is wrong. And they'll just sort of cringe, you know, because God made their conscience just like your conscience, just like all our conscience. We've all been made in the image of God. And uh, so again, we all are made. We're born into this world knowing lying's wrong, telling the truth is right. Stealing is wrong, not stealing is right. In the sexual arena, that sex would remain for marriage only and not outside that. And on down and on down the list. And it's not... uh, a personal thing or even a Judeo-Christian ethic thing. It's a human nature thing. We've all been made in the image of God. And so here again, he says, do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good. You'll have praise from the same. So you guys know how that is, right? You're on the freeway and you're cruising along at the speed of traffic. Of course, you're helping the speed of traffic. Uh, and all of a sudden, you see, uh, you think anyway, a uh, highway patrol pull up behind a car, you know, ooh, you know. You know, what gets me is you have the highway patrolman out of the car, riding the guy the ticket, and people are still braking. It's like, this is the time to speed up, man. If you're going to speed, this is the time. But uh, there's just that sense of fear. It, it's not even a rational thing. It's sort of, oh boy, am I doing what's right? And... Uh, I've seen people going exactly the speed limit. No, they slow, you know, they're still freaking out, slowing down, even beyond the speed limit. 
So there's that, that sense of, of fear that we have. And again, if we're not doing right, or maybe we are doing right, but sometimes we don't do right, we check ourselves to do if you're doing right. And uh, again, in verse 4, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you do, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs. Fear unto whom fear. And honor to whom honor. And so, again, you can always come up with an excuse for what you want to do or not want to do. You know, you see that with the abortion arena. You know, but, you know, what if the woman, you know, was raped and is pregnant? Or what if the woman was molested by her father and became pregnant? And you can come up with these pretty heavy scenarios. But yet, at the same time, you can go and give examples of people who had a baby, even from a rape. And to see this person now alive and accomplishing great things. It's not that baby's fault. Don't, don't punish the baby. You can give the baby up for adoption. There's, there's other options besides killing somebody. Often you, you hear the thing where there's somebody having an affair. And in their mind, the only thing I can do is murder somebody to try to straighten out this whole affair thing. And they kill somebody. And it's like, you know what? There is another option. I understand, in a way, murdering the person you're having an affair with or murdering your wife so you can go off with this other person would be an easy solution. But you know what you're going to find out, even if you get away with it? You have a conscience that's not going to let you get away with it. Even 50 years from now, if you've murdered somebody, you're going to have to deal with it. And so really when it comes back to, is the baby in you life? Or is it not life? And if it's life, you cannot murder it, even if it would make your life easier. And uh, believe me, I mean, killing kids after they've been born, especially teenagers, would make your life easier at times. But uh, it's not the solution. Um, although it's tempting sometimes, it's, it's not the solution. And so, again, we need to understand that we need to submit to authorities even if it seems like that authority is not right towards you. I think of uh, the example where they came to Jesus about the temple tax. The Jews uh, had to give above their tithe every year uh, money towards the temple just to keep the temple up or rebuild the temple or remodel the temple or whatever. And there was a percent. And they came to Jesus and they said, hey, have you given that offering basically? And there was a temple tax. And Jesus said, hey, does a king's son have to pay taxes? In other words, it's my father's house. <laughs> I mean, if there's somebody to be exempt from a temple tax, it would have been Jesus. But he said, nevertheless, you know, I don't want you to be stumbled. And he told Peter to go fishing. He caught a fish, opened the fish's mouth, and there was the amount of money to pay his and Peter's temple tax. Also, they came to Jesus about Caesar whether they should pay taxes to Caesar, and Caesar was oppressing them. Caesar actually had made a tax, an extra tax, just because you're a Jew. The Jews were so difficult to rule 
Caesar said, all the world's going to get taxed this, and if you're a Jew, and wherever you're living out in the world, you're going to get taxed extra. And the Jews just despised the fact that they had that Jewish tax because of their stubbornness. And Jesus says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. We think of Joseph being sold into slavery. Here he was. His brothers were going to kill him. They said, hey, forget that. Let's make some money on him. They sell him into slavery. And so here he is unwrongfully a slave in Egypt. And what does he do? He has a right heart towards Potiphar, and he's raised up as a top slave. If, well, that's a great thing. But then he's accused as a rapist. Potiphar's wife said he raped her while Potiphar was gone on, out of business. And then what happened? He's now thrown into prison, wrongfully. And in prison, he submits again and becomes the top prisoner. <laughs> you know, he's getting lifted up at a lower level. And, of course, all of this was God's positioning of him to get him to the place where he would eventually be able to interpret Pharaoh's dream, and then he was raised up to the second in command next to Pharaoh himself. And so you could have said, Joseph, you know, out of all people, you have no reason to submit, rebel against Potiphar, you're wrongfully here, try to do what you need to do to escape or whatever. But yet he submitted. He had a sense that God was in this, and he submitted. We think of Joseph and Mary. They had to all go back to their ancestors' home. In other words, Joseph and Mary had never lived in Bethlehem. But because he was of the lineage of David, that was the city that David was born in. Since he was from that lineage, he had to go back to Judah, to the area of Judah, which was Bethlehem. And there, Mary's nine months pregnant. She has to take a 90-mile-plus journey from 800 feet below sea level down there in Nazareth area by the Sea of Galilee, all the way up 3,000 feet above sea level on a donkey, nine months pregnant. You know, and I'm sure Joseph maybe went to the authorities and said, hey, come on, my wife's nine months pregnant. You mind if we just get counted here and pay our taxes here? And whatever the reason was, no, no, no. He had to go to Bethlehem. And of course, we know that the scripture was there to be fulfilled, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so we see that the authorities, even though they were oppressive, yet God utilized it for his glory. And this is why we need to have a right attitude, that even if the authorities are wrong, we need to submit. Unless, of course, there are exceptions to that rule, and that is if they're asking you to do something in direct violation to what God has told you. For example, the midwives in Exodus, remember there? Pharaoh said, hey, when you're delivering those Hebrew children, if it's a baby boy, kill it. And the midwives, they didn't kill any baby boys. And boy, the Pharaoh called a man and was going to just rail on him for, hey, I told you to kill all those baby boys. Or, There's too many of them. They can become men and they can overtake us. And, and it said, God bless those women for not submitting of course, again, God said not to kill. They knew they were not to kill. So that was in direct violation of God's will. So you, you obey God rather than man. In the same way there in Acts chapter 4, the religious leaders, which happened to be also the civil leaders, um, called Peter and the gang in. And they said, hey, from this point forward, we're commanding you as your leaders, do not preach Jesus anymore. And Peter said, it's funny because the last thing Jesus told us was go preach Jesus. 
So, where you, so what you're asking me to do is direct violation to what God told me to do. And so Peter says, do I obey God or man? And of course, he was rhetorically answering the question for them. I have to obey God rather than man because it was in direct violation. But most of the time, it's not in direct violation. It's uh, something that we don't like. You know, they're raising our taxes. We don't like that. Or uh, they're making the freeway out here a toll freeway uh, instead of a free freeway. We don't like that. Or um, some other law. And so again, there's a point where you may not like it, but we need to obey authority and submit to them. And if we don't like it, it tells us in 1 Timothy 2, Therefore I exhort you, first of all, the supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks, be made for all men, especially, again, in verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all goodness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. And so we are not to be adversaries with authorities. We're to be at peace with authorities. And we need to pray for them. We need to ask God to bless them. And as you pray for them, and again, sometimes authorities are our enemies. What does the Bible say to do for our enemies? What did Jesus say in Matthew? Love them. Pray for them. Do good to them. Bless them. So every Sunday night, we have a time of prayer after the service here. And we put up, right up on the screen up here, the president's picture, the vice president, the cabinet, the Supreme Court, our mayor, um, our police chiefs. Our, I mean, we don't do it every week, but we put them up and we pray for those in authority. Exactly as the Bible says. Somebody pointed out to me the other day, it's like, every time I read a passage of scripture, we do it at church. I was reading the other day, you know, be ready to, for the elders to anoint the sick with oil. And you guys do that. You have oil right on front. The leader's there and they anoint him. And it's like, you guys do exactly what's there. It's like, absolutely. And this is one of the things that the Bible says to do. And this is one of the things we do. And uh, again, this is what God says for us to do unto authorities. Is to, as a family, as a church, to lift them up in prayer. And one of the reasons is that we can be at peace with them. It's pretty interesting. I love that. Have you guys ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? They come up and they ask the, the guy of the, the main rabbi there of the town, they said, you have a blessing for everything. Oh, yes, I have a blessing for everything. Well, do you have a bl- blessing for the czar, the, the Russian czar? He said, yes, may God bless him far, far, far away from here. <laughs> and so, you know, you can find out some way to pray for him. And... Uh, to live at peace with them, you know, Lord bless them, but far, far, far away from us. Maybe that's the, the way we're at peace with them. Anyway, I thought of that, this verse, when I, every time I see that, that movie, it's a great musical. But anyway, First Peter chapter 2 also says, in verse 13 and 14, also in verse 17, Therefore submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme, to the governors, to those who sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of those who do good. Also, verse 17 of, of 1 Peter 2, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. And so, even though he may not be a righteous king, even though he may even be doing things that are wrong, to honor him. And this is something we do, just like we honor our father and mother. Often, mothers and fathers aren't worthy to be honored, but we still honor them. 
even if they're not worthy to be honored. Well, in the same way, we need to honor authorities. And uh, I've, I've seen where, you know, the police officer comes to the window and people are acting, you know, rude. Why are you pulling me over? I wouldn't do anything wrong. You know, that's just wrong. He's an authority. You honor that police officer. And you submit. You do whatever it is they're asking you to do. Because, again, we need to honor them. Now, again, if they're asking to do something in direct violation to what God's told us to do, that's another issue altogether. But I doubt that's the case. Uh, rarely is it the case. So we submit to those in civil authority. Secondly, we submit to the authorities of the church. Uh, there's a number of verses on this. I'm just going to look at one of them tonight. In Hebrews 13, verse 17, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And so to the people in the church that are in authority here, myself, the other pastors, the leaders of the church, to have a heart of submission. Why? Because it's to your advantage that you would listen to what they have to say and to have a heart of submission towards them. What are they trying to do? They're trying to help you. Now, again, there are exceptions to this. There are some churches which we call the shepherding doctrine churches. And this is where the leaders of the church say in order to shepherd the people, they need to actually control their lives. And we have not learned Christ in that way. Jesus didn't control people. And so in some of these churches, which are cults, if they do this. They actually tell people that you have to get their permission to buy a new car, to go on vacation, to change jobs, to whatever you're doing. Um, I've seen it in uh, the Boston Church of Christ movement uh, here in town. They call themselves the San Diego Church or the Chula Vista Church or whatever, where um, people have been told um, they need to drop out of college and, and spend their time full-time being discipled or um, they need to break up with their boyfriend or girlfriend, in some cases even divorce their spouse. And if they don't do it, then you're no longer a Christian. If you don't do what we're telling you to do, you're no longer right with God. And um, they kick them out of the church and say there's no more hope because they're the only church in existence. That's really the right church. All other churches are wrong. Now, if there's something clear in the word, we go and do exactly what the Bible says. So if somebody clearly in the word, so let's say for some example, somebody's committing adultery. Well, it's clear in the word, that's sin. So in Matthew 18, it says, one person goes and talks to them. And if they hear that one person, then you've won them, it goes no further. But if that one person can't win them, it says take one more or two at the most and go talk to them. And if that doesn't work, then you bring them before the church. And in our situation, it wouldn't necessarily be a Sunday morning church, but it would be the sphere of the church that they're in. So if they're a part of a home fellowship, a part of a ministry, that's the group that would confront them and beg them, get on their knees and cry and beg them to repent from their sin because their soul is in eternal jeopardy. It's not about us lording it over them. It's about them clearly living not just struggling, but living in a sinful life. And so that's when we would take that kind of serious stand. And then 
if they don't hear the church, it says in Matthew 18, to excommunicate them, to kick them out. And it says, whatever we bind on earth, God will bind in heaven. Whatever we loose on earth, God will loose in heaven. So we shut the church doors to them here on earth. God shuts heaven's doors to them. And uh, Paul says that their body would be destroyed, that their soul might be saved in 1 Corinthians 5. That's a heavy thing. But uh, for the most part, um, I think it's often just the encouragement or, or the direction that the leaders are trying to give the people and people being unwilling to take that direction. And again, it should be in the Bible. You should be able to say, chapter and verse. So if uh, the pastor's trying to get people to do something that's not clearly in the Bible, well, then you should have a problem with that. But if what they're trying to show you is in the Bible, and that's what you're trying to be encouraged, and you're being stiff-necked about that, you're being rebellious, it's only to your own hurt. And let me tell you something. People only have so much push in their lifetime. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever seen that as a parent? You can only resist your kid for so long, and then your kid wins, often to their own hurt, or your wife, or your husband, or somebody else. And so, again, we need to have that heart towards the spiritual leaders to, to be willing to say yes. You know, I, I love Jonathan's armor bear. You know, where Jonathan's like, man, I'm just feeling like God could beat the whole Philistine army with one man. I'd like to give it a try. And the armor bears, let's go. Let's do it. I'm right behind you. And I, I love that heart, you know, and you see it with David's mighty men. And I think that's the heart of the people in the church towards, again, hopefully the spiritual leaders are hearing from God. What they're doing is biblical and all those things you need to check out. Um, there, you know, you don't want to be a, a blind follower. We, we, we're not talking about a blind loyalty here. We're not talking about turn your brain, you know, your brains in neutral and, and coast here. Um, we're saying things that are clearly in the word. And, uh, you know, example, you know, we, we've had more than one occasion where couples will harden their hearts and, and will go to the wife and, and say, look, forgive your husband. He sincerely wants to be forgiven. And the wife just says, no, I'm not going to forgive him. And so it's like, it's very clear in the word that what she needs to do. But yet she won't listen to authority. She won't submit herself uh, to the spiritual leaders to try to help her. And many other examples like that. And uh, also, there's submission one to another. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And also in 1 Peter chapter 5, the second part of that verse, Yes, all of you, be submissive one to another. Be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so there's that heart towards one another that just says, hey, you know what? I'm going to have a heart of willingness to be teachable, willingness to listen, willingness to be changed, willingness to be moved. I'm, gonna, I'm open to what the Spirit of God has to say through you. And there's that heart of willingness to submit one to another. Also, um, spouses need to submit to each other and the family. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. You there? It says, submitting one to another in the fear of God. 
Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband's the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. So it's rather extreme. He says, first of all, have a submission one to another. So there should be a mutual submission, husband to the wife and wife to the husband. But in the particular, the husband is the authority of the home. Do I hear an amen from the guys on that one? Amen. Uh God set it up that way. Okay, so if you have a beef about it, you have a beef with God. So just save your letters and uh, your your nasty uh, phone messages and whatever. And your beef is with God. And I understand it flies right into the face of political correctness today. But it's God, it's the husband, it's the wife, it's the kids. And the family is a trinity. The father, the father, the mom, the kids, or the husband, the wife, the kids. And it's that place of authority. And so, in particular, there needs to be a heart of submission one towards another. Now, notice it doesn't say there in Ephesians 5, husbands, tell your wives, command your wives, make sure your wives are submitting to you. It does not say that. It's almost like, husbands, put your finger in your ears. This isn't for you to even hear. Wives, you need to have a heart of submission towards your husband as to the Lord. That's pretty extreme. In everything. That's even more extreme. So it's not just on spiritual things or domestic things or home things or whatever it might be. It's the whole gamut of situations. There needs to be a heart of submission. And of course, if you guys have even a half sense of wisdom you will learn that your wife is right most of the time. Not just because you don't want her to be mad at you, because they're really right most of the time. And, uh, and so hopefully you learn as you grow to listen to wisdom. And, uh, you know, I do a whole teaching on that out of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, so I'm not going to go into that. But um, there needs to be that heart of wives towards their husbands, and of course, towards one another, Ephesians 5, 21 says as well. Children, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's just right. Honor your father, your mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. So God says there's a special blessing from heaven that you will have a full life. If you will learn to submit to your parents. And I understand that a lot of parents make that command very, very difficult. They're just not respectful. They're not people to respect. I I know many occasions I, I talk on this. I'll have people come up going, you know what? As long as I can remember, my dad was a drunk. <laughs> he drank every paycheck. My mom struggled to pay, you know, get his food. And you're telling me that I need to honor him? You know what? I don't, I don't know in what way you can honor him, but pray about it. God will give you wisdom how to honor him. But yeah, in your heart, you need to find some way to honor him. You see, don't let it ever stop with you, whatever it is. Don't ever let it stop with you. I've learned that a long time ago. If it's giving, you know, eventually there's somebody who says, you know, maybe a missionary out there that says, you know, this is where it ends. You know, is the missionary supposed to 
tithe and give offerings from the little bit they get? Fire missionary? Yeah. I'm just never going to let it stop with me. In the same way, you know, you're honoring everybody and there's somebody up there you just don't honor because they're the person that everybody honors. You know what? I'll never be that person. Just always honor the people above you. And I understand that some people make it incredibly different, difficult not to be bitter. But I'm not going to be bitter. I don't care if they try to get me bitter. I'm not going to be the guy that stops and says, it's okay for me to be bitter. And you'll find that if you have that mentality, that your heart will beat better, your blood vessels will work better, your digestive system will work better, you'll sleep better, you'll be generally a happier person. I had a person who was an atheist many, many years back, and he came and he said, you know, I believe this whole thing's a crock. And I said, well, what, what's bothering you? He goes, look at that Sermon on the Mount, you know. I said, okay, let's just say right now, God doesn't exist, and the whole thing's a crock, but you're going to do it anyway. What kind of life would you have? If you try not to lust, <laughs> you be honest. If somebody's trying to take you off to court, you try to settle with them before you get to court. You love your enemies. You pray for them, bless them, do good to them. I just went right on down the list. I said, what kind of life would you have? He goes, well, it'd be a pretty happy life. I said, right there. I mean, you're, you're, you're saying it yourself. Now, I know it's true. I know there is God. I know he did speak it. But even if it, there was no God, you're, in your own admission, this is the best lifestyle to live for a happy, full life. Where there's trust, where there's love, where there's kindness, a life without bitterness. And so, again here, I say, you know, you can always come and say, well, yeah, I know it says honor your parents, but, you know, forget that one for me. Yeah, I know it says to respect your husbands and submit to him, but forget that one for me. You know, I'm just going to throw that to the side because I realize it applies to 99.99% of everybody else, but I am the exception to that rule. You know what? Just don't make yourself an exception, and you'll be much happier, and you'll live a fuller life. Don't be the exception. Find a way to respect your husband and honor him. Find a way to honor your parents. Find a way. In Colossians 3, verse 18 and to verse 20, he sort of puts it all together there in the family package. Wives, submit, your, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. There it is. It's just right in God's sight. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. So three little sentences there, very clearly. Just do it. Now, we also know that a heart of a lack of submission is the heart of an apostate person. Turn, if you would, over to James chapter 3. In James chapter 3, verse 13. The book of James, almost to the end of the Bible, chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy, self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, demonic. 
For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so he breaks it into two categories. And he's saying there really isn't a fine line. That if you look at it, it's pretty much black and white. It's a big, giant, thick line right down the middle that you have somebody who's walking in the wisdom of God and there's a pureness there, there's a peaceable, a gentleness, a willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits. It's going to just bear fruit in righteousness and peace. Then there's the other thing where this person's unwilling to submit, unwilling to yield, and unwilling to have a meekness of wisdom. And it just spins off into bitterness and envy, self-seeking, until it's earthly, sensual, demonic. And I'll tell you what, that's where it begins. Well, I can't honor my parents. You know what? You're going to find out right behind that, there's 20 other people you can't honor either. All of a sudden, I can't honor my boss at work because he also. I can't honor my school teacher because he also or she also. And you'll, you'll find a reason for everybody else you can't honor. You can't submit to your parents. You'll find out you can't submit to the next person and the next person and the next person and the next person. It's not really who the person is. It's about your heart. It's not about can you honor this person or not. It's can you honor people. And you'll find that all of a sudden you're the exception to every rule and honoring nobody. And it's really your own heart. In the same way with the, the submission, you'll find out that everybody you can't submit to. And uh, it's really an issue not of the person. It's an issue of your heart. In Jude, verse 8, one little page book. Likewise also... These dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. So here he gives a list of the apostates, and he just says they're defiling the flesh. In other words, you're living immoral, sensual, ungodly lives. And then another thing you can see a constant in the life of the apostate in Judate there is they reject authority. And the third thing you see there is they speak evil of dignitaries. Um, some think that's just spiritual dignitaries. Others says it's also earthly and spiritual dignitaries. But either way, um, they just have no heart to honor people. They don't submit and they don't honor. They reject authority and they badmouth people of authority, whether those are heavenly or earthly authorities. Well, here in Titus, he goes on to finish up by saying here, so remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey. Just simply to obey. So you're ready for every good work. You're not bogged down. So here we just saw that he wants to purify himself a people zealous for good works. Now why aren't you zealous for good works? Why, aren't you, why don't you have a passion to do the good works? Whatever that good work is that God's put before you, that ministry God's put before you. It's amazing. It's staggering. If you look at the numbers of the amount of people that come to church and the percent of people that have a ministry and serve one another, you'd be flabbergasted. If you looked at the amount of people and how they don't serve, they're willing to come and worship, they're willing to come and hear a sermon, 
but they are not willing to be zealous for good works. And I think a big part of it, as we've been studying through Titus, is they're just their character, their life, is so full of corruption and sin and ungodliness. They're just bogged down in the mire. And when they come to church, it's like, uh, uh, help me, you know, I'm, you know, it's like Satan's got this leg and two demons got this leg and, uh, you know, and they're like that year after year after year. It doesn't matter if they're a Christian one year or 50 years. They just live life right next to the edge of, of sin. And there comes a point that you just say, man, I want to break loose from an ungodly life and pursue God. And when you do that, you'll find a whole energy. As it says there in Hebrews chapter 12, you're letting go of the weights and the sins. It may not necessarily be a sin, but it's a weight. It's something of this earth, something of this thing that's just bogging you down, keeping you from having the energy to pursue God. So let go of the sins and let go of the weights so you can run the race with endurance. And then we find another reason why people often are bogged down and can't have that life that's zealous for good works. It's because they don't respect authorities and they don't honor those in authority. They don't have a submission and they don't have the heart to honor, respect. And if that's you, you need to repent. And you need to say, you know what? I'm going to, from this point forward, submit to authorities, respect authorities, and I'm going to honor those in authority. Give honor to whom honor is due. Right? Fear unto whom fear, that last verse of Romans 13. So, you're set free, ready, to do all the good works that God has for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. And we do ask in Jesus' name that you would just take the scaffold of your word and just poke right between the joints and the ligaments to go right in there, Lord, right between the sinew and the bone itself. Operate, Lord. Do what you need to do in in causing us to be a people after your own heart. And we know here tonight, Lord, you're not trying to condemn anyone, put anybody down, make anybody feel like dirt. Quite the opposite. You're trying to encourage them and knock the dirt off so they can be freed up to enjoy this life, to enjoy one another, to enjoy the church to enjoy their home, enjoy their work, enjoy their community. And Lord, we do thank you that we are in a country that has so many freedoms. And Lord, we do pray for those in so many parts of the world. Just reading here in this newspaper this last week about what's going on over in Saudi Arabia and how they're just taking anybody who's not a devout Muslim and imprisoning them. And so many other countries like that into the Sudan and Iran and Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan and Afghanistan and so many in those countries in Egypt, so many places, Lord, in China. Lord, we just ask right now, God, that you'd help the saints, Lord, strengthen their hearts. Even as we pray right now, you said whatever we agree on earth would be bound in heaven or loosed in heaven. We ask right now that you just send your showers of blessing upon them, Lord. Free them up. Help them, God. Just like you did with Paul. Just shake the prisons and open the doors right now. Bring salvation. Bring help. Bring courage. Bring bravery. And Lord, we thank you that we're so free. Help us, Lord. 
to walk in a manner worthy of you here in this country. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen.